is the Rugby Centurions podcast. Welcome to another show with me, Martin Cross, and Rugby Centurions, Chris Evans. Our guest this week is a giant of Australian rugby in every sense. Nathan Sharp played 116 test matches for the Wallabies, including 20 as captain. The six-foot, seven-inch lock forward represented his country for 16 consecutive seasons, having first pulled on the green and gold jersey for the under-19s in 1996, the year professional rugby began. After retiring in 2012, having played in three Rugby World Cups, he made an impressive transition away from the game with various entrepreneurial activities and can now be found turning his attentions to the mining industry while also working in the media and sampling the finer things in life. And that's where we began our chat, hearing about his latest business venture with his wife, King's Creed Wines. When I first left rugby, I started a, you know, a recruitment company with my best mate. And one of the things that we always said is that we have to have quality in what we do because if you don't produce uh, quality, then it's not a long, long-term sustainable solution. So, you know, hence the reason we've got Ben Riggs, who's a fantastic winemaker. Um, and there's three individual labels that um, are part of the group and, and they all operate independently. But, you know, in terms of the quality of wine, um, it's a long-term passion and investment, I think, for all of us because the wine game is very competitive and you probably don't recognise it, but when you go and buy a bottle of wine off the shelf, Quite often you might see one that you see for the first time, but you've probably seen it 10 or 11 times before you've actually made that decision. So, you know, for us, like anything, you want to get there overnight and do it really, really quickly, but that's just not the case in life. Uh, everything that's good takes time and it's, it's, there's no different to playing rugby. You know, you've, you've got to work at your trade and get to a point where, you know, people turn around and go, oh, you know, where did he come from? You know, I always think about a guy like Sam Kane, you know, Richard McCall retired and then, Everyone sort of saw saw this guy Sam Kane, thinking, "Where did he come from?" And he'd been around for five or six years in the All Black squad. So, you know, nothing comes without an apprenticeship, in my view. Talking about setting up businesses, if I could draw a comparison to when you went to the Western Force in two thousand and six, a brand new yeah. team. How did you, in terms of setting up a culture, a performance standards? It was a blank sheet of paper. Were there similarities between setting up a business and setting up a, a brand new rugby team? Oh, yeah, no doubt. You know, and one of the things that fuels a lot of that, Marty, is, is is excitement. You know, you've got a real passion for it and, you know, you're waking up every day and you've got a new challenge you've got to try and get into place. And uh, I think when I reflect on the Western Force, you know, we, we did some things really well, but we did some things really poorly too. So I definitely uh, look back on those experiences and think that they've helped um, for everything that I've done since, since then. But at the time, you don't know what you don't know, right? So... You know, the Western Force certainly in and the, the the region, the community just threw their arms around this team of guys that had, you know, typically would have always just stayed at home and, and sort of grown up a bit closer to their family. You know, the community was immediately created over there. And, you know, if, I think if, if time had to happen again, probably would have looked at bringing a little bit more experience in around the, the, the wider group. You know, we had some fantastic people over there that were passionate about the game and, and love rugby. But if you look at it, we really only had one person who had a lot of experience in, in super rugby and that was John Mitchell, the coach. So it's always important to have a, one perspective that's, um, you know, the bosses, but there needs to be people around there to, to make sure that um, it's aligned and, and there's other ways about conquering mountains, I suppose. So, you know, in reflection, I, I just think it was everyone trying to do the absolute best they could and and potentially, you know, we could have put a bit more, a bit more thought around um, some more, I guess, international rugby um, experience in, in setting it up. 
how did you set benchmarks for what was success? Well, you know, for us, we, we saw ourselves, and it, it, it's it's one of the, my bugbears about Australian rugby in a lot of senses that it was quite easy to create a siege mentality for a short period of time. Um, you know, so we play against the better teams, and everyone would get fired up. And let's take if we were playing the Crusaders, for example, and the Crusaders would probably take the foot off the gas a little bit, and we saw that as an opportunity for us to get in there and get in their face and 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 you know upset them, which we did. You know, a number of times. You know, we had a reasonable track record against them, but. We didn't play consistently well enough and, and some weeks we were right up there and right up there, but we just couldn't sustain it. So I think the importance in any great team is consistency and a lot of consistency comes with an underpinning skill level and you, you only really worry about the additional motivation as a last one or two percent, whereas, you know, we were going from a 97% performance all the way down to a 70% performance and the best teams don't do that. And and I think with the, with the, with the force... You know, we had some really passionate players, but um, we probably could have done a bit bit better in terms of just even our basic skill composition, you know. How do you drive that consistency, Nathan? I think, you know, to maintain a level of performance, how do you do it? Well, it's a cultural thing, Chris. I think, you know, over a period of time, it just becomes second nature and taking into account the forces a new team with people from all over the shop around Australia. You know, they have different experiences, different, different backgrounds thrust together. The, the most consistent teams in uh, world rugby are the teams that have been together the longest because they're all aware of what's expected of them when they come in and they rise to that occasion, you know. But if you don't have those really solid foundations at the start that are driven by the senior players, it's a it's a difficult um, race to try and catch up on because you've got to re-establish that at, at some point. You mentioned um, John Mitchell, who's now with Eddie Jones over here in England, coaching the England side. Can you sort of compare... You've played under some great coaches, Robbie Deans, John Mitchell and Eddie. Could you compare those three in terms of perhaps their attitude to performance, to high performance, to setting targets? Did they have similarities in some respects? Oh, yeah, they're all very driven individuals, you know. Um, and, and, you know, I think the other thing that, that you that you like about the, their style of coaching is they're always trying to evolve. You know, they, they understand the game changes and, and they've got to work with that. And, and try and be ahead of that game. So whilst they're all, I guess, if you, if you if you look at them, they kind of all came through different positions, which gave them different traits, you know. So, um, you know, Eddie liked a bit of niggle in there, getting in there, as I'm sure you see in the in the English team. He, he loves playing those mental games. You know, John Mitchell had a really, you know, direct style and, um, you know, it was never any shadow of a doubt as to, you know, what he wanted or expected from players in his team. And then Robbie Deans, who, um, you know, is probably a little bit more, Creative, I think, in in the sense that he, um, you know, he he had a real history from the New Zealand background that he that he had had, and he came in to try and I guess um, transplant a bit of that in, into Australian in the into the fabric of Australian rugby and all intent and purpose. Uh, I'm not sure if he really ever got quite to that point. I was going to ask you about that because each country has its national characteristics, the way that you're born and brought up, and to try and replicate success from another environment into a completely different environment tricky for Robbie but how did you as players honestly how did you take to it I mean Robbie was there for actually what was he six years maybe longer look at the start it's like anything you know there's always a um, result from just changing what you normally do and there's some some a real open-mindedness from the guys I think um, you know once initial sort of understanding of what what he wanted uh, came through but again, you know, the, you, you do have to look at 
the wider picture in Australian rugby. You've got a very very disconnected developmental pathway, or you have had for a long period of time. You know that's starting to be rectified now. But if you look in New Zealand, they they they're taught the same things from the youngest of ages all the way through. You know, so it's not as though they're switching from one team to another, learning a completely different um, skill set. Um, in particular, from the individual side of things, you know, they all clean out the same way. They all learn to tackle the same way. They run similar defensive patterns. And in Australia, you've got, you know, we've, we've had provinces just doing completely different methodologies when they when it comes to um, how they play rugby. So it was never really a, a linear sort of line when the Wallabies came together. It was, you know, bits and pieces everywhere. And I think the national team sort of took the flavour on from the most dominant provincial representation in the in the in the group so you know that waxed and waned a little bit and, and it's, it's just not as clean i don't think as um you know for mine a, a centralized developmental pathway you know so um australia's working on on that and i, and I don't sit here for a second and say new zealand's got 100 percent right in the way that they do it or ireland but you know there's some aspects of what they do that are very very productive and and are for the, the greater good of, of strengthening the, the the top tier of rugby while not forgetting about developing everyone coming through and giving them their opportunities. What's the golden thread, Nathan? I think when you look back at your career, then obviously into business and obviously setting up, you know, your latest business, what's the golden thread to to create that high performance culture for you? Yeah, it's a good it's a good question, Chris. I think um consistency in your approach um you know I, I, I suppose and i'm maybe talking from for my own experiences but i was never the most athletic person i just kind of just kept turning up and, and working away you know so that resilience to keep on getting up off the floor and, and adapting as you go was was always important to me and i guess that's the you know if i if i reflect on that it's some of my favorite players had that in spades and you kind of enjoyed watching them you know do that and then finally kind of just keep making their way and, and all of a sudden they're, you know, the, you know, Alwyn Jones, you know, looking to where he's, he's summited to, you know, and um, that sort of continuity of approach and just completely um, disciplined towards being the best you can. Uh, I think that for me is always a really important approach to how you get better at anything. And do you think, I mean, looking back, was that you talk about some of those players you looked up to? Who were they when you, you were on the field, when you were competing against them? Who were the ones that really sort of stood out to you in those battles? From a line-out nerd perspective, you know, I used to, I used to love playing against Victor from South Africa. Um, you know, he ran, a, he ran a really tight ship. I think there's a few games there where they were lifting props in the line-out. They had that many tall buggers in, in, their, uh, in, their, in their pack. So you had to be pretty clever and cunning as to how to get in amongst all that top, tall timber. So, you know, any team, whether it's Super Rugby or <clears throat> Test Match, that line-out strategy had to be on point, you know, and um, some games we, we did there and we got a result and other games, you know, we didn't go so well. And I always remember, I think we lost a we lost um, our third jumper in one game. So Georgie Smith had to stand in as the, our third jumper and, and I just remember looking at him and he had no idea where the ball was going, but uh, he, was, he gave it his best shot, that's for sure. And did that inspire you playing against those players? Was that sort of, was it like you look forward to those encounters with a victor or someone of that type of nature where you sort of not had them on a pedestal, but you actually, you know, I guess had that healthy level of respect for how they operated on the field? Oh, yeah, I think you just you just knew you had to be well organised. Um, and it was a bit different from when you were younger. You know, when, when I was younger, it was always just, you know, trying to get as fired up as you could and, and trying to, you know, tell yourself how much you hated your opposition. But then... 
you get older and, and that white line or that, you know, that the red mist, so to speak, it has to clear up because you've got to be responsible for decisions and, and logical um, solutions on the field, you know, and you can't, you can't operate in that environment. You've got to have some sort of uh, um, some level of, I guess, sensitivity as to what's going on in the field and around you, you know, so that's when strategically it sort of becomes more important and, and the older you get, the, e- the easier it is to do that. And, and I think that's one of the things with, that in my mind, when when coaches always have a tough selection between picking a younger player and potentially an older player, you know, the younger player, um, they've always got a bit more time on their side. With an older player, generally they're more adept at, at their preparation and more consistent with their performance, you know. So if, if, if it's a 50-50 call, I sometimes understand why coaches go with um, that tried and true because they're going to get a consistent performance. Absolutely. How do you, this is a tough one, but how do you turn off the red mist? Because surely when, you, when you're in the moment, right, you're in the yeah. moment on the pitch, something happens, you know, the crowd's there. Um, how do you go to a place where actually you can bring your, you know, emotions down and think strategically, tactically about the game at that point and not just be in that reactive, you know, come on type, type phase? Yeah, I think I think it's like a it's a it's almost a compartmentalization on the field, you know. If you if you've got the ball and you're in a position where a decision needs to be made, you know, you're you're cool headed and you're calm and you're looking at more of a macro level, you're looking you know, where where, where are the opportunities, I suppose. But then if you get into a scenario where it's, you know, mall defense or something like that and you just want to get stuck in there, then you've got to kind of switch that on and off. And again, the the older you get, the the better you get at doing that, I think. And I always um, you know, I talk to my kids about it when I was younger, you know, I'd spend the whole game day wasting so much energy, you know, jumping up and down, getting ready to run the field and, you know, rip people's heads off. And then by the, my last couple of years, like I could get to the ground, fall asleep, wake up. And then as soon as you cross the line, you're, you're in game mode and switched on because you'd done it so many times and you were in that, you know, you had that muscle memory that as, as soon as you got into that um, arena, you knew exactly what was, was on, on the cards, you know? So it was quite a contrasting start and finish to, to uh, my career. And, you know, Talk, talk to any of the guys that have been around and retired now, they, they kind of reflect a similar sort of um, feeling. Yeah, it's interesting. I think we were speaking to, uh, I think Gareth Thomas spoke about rituals and routines, but then towards the end of the career, it's just back to enjoyment uh, and that sort of turning it on when it mattered most. Was those rituals and routines an important part of your earlier career? And if so, why? I don't know. I, I mean, I, I always think that uh, I probably had a bit of OCD or something like that when I was younger. You know, you had to have the same meals and eat at the same times. But in reflection, it's probably just a, a you know, a marker in your body that just says, look, it's it's time to switch on. This is, your body is telling yourself that it's game day and um, it's time to go and this is what happens on game day. So it's it's not a bad thing. And I think it creates a bit of comfort in routine in, in some respects. But having said that, it, it, it threw you out sometimes. You know, I remember being in South Africa and all I wanted was a spaghetti bolognese for lunch before a game and, you know, all sorts of stuff was coming out and I'd get all yeah. in the tears going, where's my buddy Bob Bob Bolognese? You know, I want some spaghetti and I couldn't get it. And he'd be more worried about that than playing the game. You know, so yeah. the early days, you know, you, you, you're pretty flappable with that sort of stuff. But towards the end, you kind of, you know. When you became captain, Nathan, how did that affect you in terms of focusing on your, you, know, you as a player? How did that change you in terms of your responsibilities as a captain and your rituals and your routines? Yeah, I, I think Martin. As you get older, it's probably the same sort of vein. You know, I, I, I had a, I had a, uh, a couple of games in, earlier on my career when I was in my early twenties as, as captain, and probably got a bit too, um, 
emotive about it and tried too hard and, you know, forgot about what the most important thing was, which was performing your role in the team first and foremost and, you know, setting the tone, I think, for, for what the team needed. And then towards the end, it, it wasn't really about formalising anything. You know, you, you're at that stage of your career where you are um, in control of what you're doing and all you really want to do is help those around you and, and you know, set the right platform for them. So um, two really, again, really contrasting experiences and early early uh, leadership stint and then, a you know, a one at the end there where it was, you know, whether I was captain or not didn't bother me at all. And on your leadership, Nathan, how would you... How would you describe it? How would you describe your, I guess, your leadership style and, and has it evolved? I think I'm quite um, quite an emotional lady, you know, I, you know and, and getting back to that point earlier, you know, I, I think that um, the ability to show that uh, emotion and enthusiasm and passion is really powerful. And then at times, you know, in reflection, it's it's probably not so because, then, you know, if you're not at the same level all the time, people wonder why is this one more important than the other, you know. So, you know, that's probably a strength and weakness in, in its own sense. I think they're crisp. But for me now, it's about consistency around what you do and, and turning up and, and not taking all the little pieces of the puzzle that fall into place for granted, you know, because at the end of the day, the accumulation of those um, small achievements is what, you get, what gets you to, you know, the summit of the mountain that you're trying to climb. And do you see, I mean, I don't know if it's a fair reflection, but in rugby, everybody is geared towards that mission. You know, it's probably been something they've dreamed of for many years to play for their international side. You get there, you know, you're going to World Cup glory or whatever it may be on that particular journey or phase. So it's, everybody is sort of that mission orientated. Is that different in business? Is that more challenging to get the whole of a team aligned to that purpose and drive that maybe the entrepreneurs have, but maybe, you know, it's, it's not quite that drive somebody sort of lower down in the team potentially has. Yeah, no, it's, it's a really good point, Chris. And again, you know, the, the similarities between sport and business is, is, is amazingly close. You know, if you look at people all through an organization, they've all got different levels of motivation for why they turn up or what they're trying to achieve. And, you know, some people, can present something that you think, well, they're not that motivated to achieve the bigger picture, but they actually might be really motivated just to fill their role within a team. You know, other people have got motivations because they want to turn up and, and you know, cater for their families. And that's their, that's their um, I guess, the, the, the energy for turning up every day and, and getting involved. But I think if you understand those motivations, then it makes it easier to shape something or shape a goal for, for people to, to aim for. So, you know, I think, in, as I got older again, and I feel like I'm reflecting on a real contrast in my career, but I guess as you get through things, you think about things a bit more. Understanding people's motivations as part of a team and, and what makes them tick and, and giving them something to aspire to or, or try and achieve, and then wrapping it into a team goal uh, is, is kind of the way that I, I look at things these days because not everyone's like me. Some people prepare differently. They approach the day differently differently. You know, they just are different in, in what they do, but there's got to be a common thread in there. And as long as that's, there's that common thread in, in I guess, an organisation or, or a team, then um, you can you can adjust that motivation to, to achieve that person's specific goals, which is in line with the team's greater goal as well. Talking about motivation, you played, well, 10 years of international rugby, longer if you talk about uh, provincial uh, super rugby. Motivation at pre-season, Nathan, how did you 
reset your goals? How did you just keep that drive, especially towards the end of your career? Younger players coming in, all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. Did you start to have to have a different driver? No, I don't think so, Martin. I think um, the younger players coming in, you know, it was an opportunity to bring them along. And the older you get, the more you realise the closer you are to the end of your career. And if there's things that you haven't achieved that you wanted to do, then um, you've got to take those people with you. And and I reflect on the 2003 World Cup. You know, I was pretty young in, in that game. And we, you know, we played England. And I don't think both, I don't think either teams played their best football in the day. But, you know, the result is the result. But I can remember at the end of it, you know, obviously gutted and disappointed and you think, well, you know, we'll get another chance, we'll get another crack at that. But, you know, by the time 2011 rolled around and, um, you know, the Wallabies, you know, were, were out of the, lost in the semi-final, you realise you're not going to get a bite of that any ever again, you know. So I think that the motivation is always there to be the best you absolutely can be and you want to be the best in the world. There's absolutely no doubt about that. You know, I remember, I've never told Victor this, but I remember um, one pre-season I was injured and, the trainer at the time, we we had to. Um, he wanted me able. To, he wanted me to be able to single uh, leg press Victor and Backy's weight combined. Just you know, as a as a bit of a uh, as a bit of a, a token for the upcoming season. You know, so I remember spending this enormous uh, off season building up my lower body, and you know, you, you find you find motivation and all sorts of things. But in in general, for us you know, the older you get, the more you want to take everyone along with you and, and achieve success because you've only got so long in that jersey. It's all okay when you're, you're bright-eyed and bushy-tailed at the start of your career and towards the end, you're, you're, you're moving hammer and tong to try and um, achieve those goals because it's time's limited, you know. When you first broke into the Queensland side, you had people like um, Jason Little and Tim Horan and John Eels. Was it a bit weird to suddenly be playing alongside them? Were they sort of idols of yours? And how did you handle that? completely mind-blowing you know I think um, uh, when I finished school in 95 those guys were you know that the Wallabies had won the 91 World Cup and you know John Eels had obviously been uh, played a big role in that and to come into that squad at sort of 1997 when a lot of those guys were at the peak of their power before they went on to win the 99 World Cup yeah, it was sensational you were a schoolboy pretty much yeah mate I had hair in those days too it was um, it was quite embarrassing it was a bit of a sort of token kind of come over but um no it was it was a it was a and it was a real um it was a war of attrition for me because back in those days you know queensland were a very dominant provincial team and and they had a bunch of old guys that you know from my age of being 19 i think the next youngest was todd okefu at 25 and you know he was one of the best players in the world as it was so um i, I sort of always feel like i was a piece of fresh meat for their amusement when i first came in and um yeah. Yeah, they just took the mickey out of me all the time. Um, you know, whether it was my skinny calves or my balding hair or my, my, my high skin folds at the time, you know, it was sort of like, let's just, um, when we get sick of picking on each other, we'll just pick on Sharpie because he doesn't say too much when he's a young black in the corner. So, and I, and I you know, I reflect on those days though because it, it really did, you know, coming from a school where you, you know, those, those sort of, uh, that resilience is a difficult thing to learn. You know, I got through that and, and became mates with all those guys on the back back end of that and, you know, managed to play a couple of years with, you know, the David Wilsons of the world and the Tim Horans and like, you know. So, um, you know, really treasured experience for me when I reflect on things. You mentioned the word resilience there. Is that a key quality in rugby? Because there were a couple of times you almost retired and persuade, you were persuaded to carry on. <laughs> um, yeah. You just wanted to go back for more. That, But resilience... 
key. Yeah. Oh, look, I don't think I don't know if that's a resilience thing, Martin. I mean, just at the time, um, you know, I, I hadn't been. You know, I think I'd sort of I'd had enough of um, being on that on that um, that treadmill, and um, you know, obviously, I think I think Robbie at the time was keen to start getting some younger guys coming through. So I sort of made a decision to 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 go and tr- transition into into the world, which was. You know the company that I started with with my best mate, and you know we sold seven years later, and here I am now, just having resigned from there. So it wasn't a bad aspiration that I had at the time, and it, and it you know worked well. And I think just circumstantially, at the end there, you know I was in a position where you know Robbie asked me to hang around a couple of times, and you know the boys took a great amusement in calling me Johnny Farnham and um, having another comeback. So it was it was a fun six months, that's for sure. We spoke about you know some of the you know the great highs and successes of playing. When it doesn't go well, Nathan, um, maybe it's a you know a World Cup exit earlier than expected. You talk about those opportunities only coming round um, you know so often. How does that how, how does that feel? What do you remember of those those times? It's good. Uh, Chris, again, you're asking some good questions, mate, because you know you're bringing up memories that um, I don't think about that often. So you know, for me, there was. Disappointment. The only way through it is to get back up and, and and go again. And you know, when you're in a World Cup, it's a long wait. You know, when you lose a Tri Nations game on the buzzer, you know, I think in 2002, we were we had to beat South Africa in I think it was Ellis Park, and um, you know, we were up and what I mean, I think it might have been uh, Jacques Ferry ran through me and Matty Coban and scored, and, and we lost the Tri Nations in that in that game. You know, some of those memories still sting, you know, but but not for personal glory. You, you think about, you know, you letting your teammates down and, and what that would have meant at the time. But, you know, I, I was lucky. I won, I won Bledisloe, won Tri, uh, Tri-Nations tournaments as well. So that was, they were great highs. I think for me, the biggest, uh, the, the hardest loss for me was the 2007 World Cup quarterfinal against England. Just because... You know, that was a game that was, you know, England played incredibly well that day. But I think in reflection, it was probably probably the best Wallabies team I played in um, through my through my career. You know, we had, um, you know, Wycliffe Parley at number eight there. We had, you know, Rocky Elson was in form, you know, George Smith and Phil War floating around. Um, Dan Vickerman, Steve Larkham, Gregan, uh, Matty Giddo starting to come into his own, Chris Latham. So, you know, it was a good team and... And that year we'd done pretty well in the Tri Nations. You know, we we had absolute slugfest with South Africa in Cape Town, and they beat us in Cape Town. But you know, it was a big game, and they went on to they went on to win the World Cup. So you sort of think, um, had we probably turned up a bit smarter against England, we we might have got home. And and then you look at other things, you know. And if I, I always thought, you know, if I coached again, you'd, you 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 can't have a reliance on one player, you know, because we lost Stephen Larkham in the two weeks preceding that, and. No one had really been blooded as 5'8". You know, it was kind of like Stevie Larkin. And he was the best player I ever played with. It was kind of just a granted that he'd turn up and, and play well and, and, you know, lead the team. And, you know, all of a sudden you find yourself in a World Cup quarterfinal without him and, you know, you, you become a bit bereft of ideas once plan A doesn't work, you know. And that's no, you know, no slot on Barnsley. He was a great player as well. But, he, you know, he just got thrown into the, into the, into the uh, mix as well. Was that the deciding factor there, Nathan, do you feel, from... Maybe not so much on the pitch, but just that mental perspective, the impact on the team. No, I, I, I just think, you know, it's, it's, it's the old way, isn't it? You know, I think England lost two of their pool games and, um, you know, every, so everyone wrote them off and 
you know, maybe we, everyone read the papers too much and, um, you know, turned up not hungry enough to, to get the job done, maybe with an eye to the semi-final the following week. And that's a, that's a hard lesson to learn. And, you know, I don't think, um, I don't think anyone on that team that was over there really recovered from that, um, from that in terms of uh, the disappointment around it, you know. Yeah. And how do you, I think for those people that have not quite experienced it, in the changing room post that match, What's it like, Nathan? Because could you just describe, I guess, how that feels and and looks? Yeah, I just think it was um, it was just numb, you know, because you uh, you're not really expecting it. You haven't thought about the reality of that situation, and you and and you know, for a couple of days, you're just sort of in a in a blaze of numbness. And I think if you ask any team that probably gets to the quarterfinal of the World Cup and gets bowed out, it's it's um, you know, very sobering experience because you've got aspirations to be at least contesting the semis and, and then winning the World Cup. You know, you don't want to be in that position. And I remember that in 2011, you know, when we played South Africa in the quarterfinal in New Zealand, you know, the guys that were left in that team from 2007, you know, there was a lot of discussion before that game between us collaborating on, you know, there's no way we're going back to that spot, you know, letting the country down, letting each other down like that, you know. Talking about dark times, your long-term Secondary partner Dan Vickerman took his own life yeah. back in 2017. That yeah. whole mental health uh, challenge has really become far more prominent in recent years. How did what happened with Dan and his struggles? How did that affect you? Oh, tremendously! You know, Vix and I still kept in contact quite a lot. We didn't cross paths in in, in industry or business on the other side, but you know, we were always there when. When, when the opportunity was there. And I think for all the guys that were close to him, you know, particularly some of the guys from Sydney Uni and the Colts days that um, spent a lot of time, that was a real shock to the system because, you know, Vix was such a combative guy that, you know, we all loved. And for him to be able to go through so much trauma internally to, to make that decision to, you know, um, finish things that way, I, you know, it was, a, it, was a big, it was a big moment because everyone sort of, took a deep breath and said, that's the reality of the situation that, you know, if, it, if it's too much for Vicks, you know, it can be too much for anyone. Did it make you think about your own mental health more? Yeah, I think so. Oh, I, I, I do think so. Um, and it's, it certainly sparked a lot more conversations around the, the group looking after each other and checking in and, and the like. And you can see that that's sort of um, really starting to unfold that way around the world in every sport you know it's it's becoming far more um aware of the potential for those sort of tragedies so you know people get around each other uh, a lot more now and it, it was never the fact that people didn't want to get around each other back in the days but you kind of just thought oh, she'll be right mate no problems you know and get on with it so you know that those support networks are, are much better now and i know that within our group here in australia you know we're always ringing up to Mate, if someone's not hasn't turned up or they've gone off the radar a bit, everyone rings up to see if they're okay and if they're doing all right. You know, you you were very prepared for the end of your rugby career. You'd already started that new business. Just how difficult is it when a career ends? Because you're still a young man. Yeah, you're in your thirties, and we've seen players struggle with that. Some have prepared for it. Some haven't. George Gregan, famously very prepared, had his coffee shops already up and running. It's a it's a real challenge though, isn't it? Because you are a young man. For sure, you know, and the, the 
the disappointing thing about it is, and it's not disappointing, it's, it's the reality of it is that if you're trying to be the best in the world and be part of the best team in the world, you've got to have a singular focus on doing that and, and everything really does come second to it. And, uh, you know, you can't, as much as you'd like to entertain thoughts of, you know, working part-time and, and you know, the study's great, you know, and the, and the, um, the different uh, courses and things that are, that are offered around, around the globe in, in different uh, rugby areas is fantastic. But the reality is that it's difficult for a business to invest time in someone who can't invest time back into them. And then uh, it's, it's also difficult because you're not really, if you are doing that, you're not really exposed to the pressures of uh, success and failure in, in, in a business because you're only kind of token. So I think, you know, for those guys that can find mentors while they're playing um, and surround themselves with good people and allow them to bridge that gap over two to three years, um, I, I do think that that's a really powerful way of exiting sport. If, if you've got the, you know, Martin, you just mentioned it, you can get an injury and be done in three weeks, you know, and that can be the end of your career. And that's, that's horrific. But, you know, if you've got the luxury of being able to plan when you might finish up, you know, I think um, there needs to be that encouragement of, of being in a network of people that are you know, aware of the fact that it's not going to be an overnight success leaving a sport and, and working out um, how the rest of the world operates, I suppose. It's a really interesting point. I mean, sometimes in the military, they, they talk about that no plan survives contact. So I guess on that rugby pitch, again, you can go and an injury happens. We were talking to Jamie Heaslip about his and he said, you know, I had some great plans, but, you know, actually I ended up stopping two years before I thought my plan yeah. was about to start. So it was, it was yeah. really difficult. You talk about that mentorship, um, I think important for all uh, ages and walks of life. Who, who was the, or who were those sort of key people around you? And I guess what influence did they have, Nathan? For me, I, I had some good people in and around rugby. You know, I'd met some really good mates outside of the periphery of the game um, that were, you know, tremendous people in their own right. And they also were you know, coincidentally, you know, they did well for themselves um, in a business sense, you know, notwithstanding my business partner, but there's a bunch of people in Perth who, who, who looked, looked out for me and, you know, still do check in and, and we're, we're still good mates with it. And then, you know, I, I always remember um, Chris White, who used to um, be a player manager and he, he still maintains a really good um, relationship with a number of players, but he always said, you've got to retire to something, not from something. So, um you know, I, because I had the luxury of being able to sort of plan that when I, when I might be able to retire, you know, I was lucky enough to have an opportunity to, to go and sink my teeth into something, which goes a long way to easing that transition because you're you're voraciously going and trying to be successful at something else, and you you've either got to you either got to swim or you you know you get shot while you drown, I spoke so to speak, you know. So it's it's um, one of those fights that you've just got to keep hooking into. Just going back to mentors then, John Eels, was that pressure on you in a way? Because John Eels was just coming to the end of his career as you, your your star was was rising in the sky. I mean, what did you learn specifically from, from Eelsy in the time that you overlapped? Oh, you know, I didn't find that as pressure from, from Eelsy in a sense. You know, he was, in a, he was in a stratosphere of his own. You know, he, he, he was never going to be... We were different players, you know, it was a different different era. So what I did learn from Elsie was the way that he treated people was um, of the utmost integrity and didn't matter if he was his 
you know, someone that was on the fringes of the team that was a mad supporter. He'd always give them the time. Uh, he always took it, he took an interest in everyone in his own team because, you know, again, you, you reflect on those things. He realised that, you know, he wanted to bring his soldiers along with him and, you know, right from the day that I got into the squad with him, he took an interest in me. And I think, Marty, we were talking about it in, maybe back in 2013. You know, he'd asked me things about my life that were, you know, really insignificant to, to what he was doing at the time. But he'd come back three weeks later and ask, ask how that worked out or, you know, how this was going or, or if he could help in that respect. And then similarly on the field, if there was something that I wasn't doing that was more expected of, he'd just have a quiet word and, and set you straight. So I kind of always liked the way that he uh, interacted with both his teammates and the humility that he had off the field as well. Um, and, and that's still true to, to this day. To understand the people individually um, makes all the difference because you can you can bring them along for the, for the for the journey and make sure they get satisfaction along the way while we're all trying to achieve the same goal. Let's let's talk about your experience. Let's talk particularly about that 100th cap which came in 2011 in in the Rugby World Cup against yeah. Wales. Yeah. What are your memories of that day, that week, and and just how important was that particular milestone? Yeah, it was a strange one, Martin, because we we just lost the semi final to New Zealand, and I, I hadn't been picked for that game, so that would have been that would have been the game in that semi final, and it just didn't work out that way. So it was kind of. For me, in, in in all reality, I, I figured it was my last game for the for the Wallabies. So, not a treasure. It was a it was a week to you know it was one of those sort of games that no one wants to play. But I sort of thought I got halfway through the week and just said, "Well, look, you know, captains on." I just thought I'd enjoy it and got out there and and it was a you know a game we got through. But um, it took all a lot of the pressure off importance of winning, which it would have been you know, if, and, and I would have preferred it to be that way in a game where. You know, my 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 personal milestone mate, meant bugger all. Uh, would have been more more about winning for the team. I would have taken that every day of the week. But in the end, it was, the pressure was off, and it was a third and fourth playoff against Wales at Eden Park. You won 116 caps, 109 starts. Not being picked for that semi final, though. How did you handle not being picked? It hardly ever happened to you. Oh, mate, what, what do you do? It, it, you know, you you kind of. Um, just got to get on the horse and help everyone else try and get a get a result so you know you, you suck it down and, and go on i don't remember the, the, the big emotions about it but you know at the time whoever's leading that that show has made a call and you got to go with it because you know they're not trying to lose the game they want to win the bloody thing so you got to support that and and after a couple of hours of sting you, you kind of get over it and you, you get on with it you know life life still goes on and i remember uh I, I went through a, when I first got picked for the Wallabies. Um, sort of got picked for a lot of games in a row, and then I got dropped. And um, you know, after a week or so, you kind of come back to reality and go, "Hey, come on, life's not so bad." And it was a really good time to sort of reflect and say, "There's bigger things out there than sure that's disappointing." But that's that's for resilience. And geez, I'd I'd like to name someone who who's who has had a life that's had nothing but success. I mean, even even bloody Tom Brady's probably failed somewhere along the way in his life. It was a ninth-round draft pick. On on the on the flip side of it, was the semi-final in 03 when you beat the All Blacks? Is that one of your favourite memories? Yeah, it was. That was, you know, it, that's a classic underdog scenario, you know, where we, we all believed that we could do it. And, you know, some, it was some masterful coaching from, from Eddie Jones and, and the way that he um, set the strategy. And, you know, 
make no bones about it. You know, he obviously identified that New Zealand scored something like 83% of their tries from counter-attack. So he kind of got up there and, you know, he had some pretty good lieutenants there in George Gregan and Stephen Larkham and the like. And he just said, look, let's just not kick it out. And if we do, just kick it as far in the stands as you can. So, you know, we, we were going to run it from everywhere. And at, at that period of time, he'd had such a good experience with Bernie and uh, Greggs. He trusted them to run the game plan. And, you know, they got up in front of the team and just said, right, boys, this is what we're doing. And, you know, you don't need to know everything that's going on. Just do your role. Just know we're going to run from everywhere and and we'll get this job done. And I think, you know, the history's in the in the archives now. You know, we I think from the very first kickoff, we went side to side to side to side and, you know, we, we just threw everything at them and, and it was a game that, that came off, you know. It was a beautiful bit of coaching because we completely changed our um, our approach to playing the Kiwis. You know, the game before that, the last game of the Tri-Nations before we played them in the World Cup, you know, they they smashed us by 50 points on the same ground. So, um, and then through that World Cup, they'd beaten everyone by 50 or 60 points and everyone kind of thought it was a, a foregone conclusion. So, no, it was a special day, mate, and, you know, you've, you know you've won a big game when all your best mates turn up and they're they're so excited they've almost passed out from from drinking too many beers from from happiness you know so by the top by the time I got around to them they were you know three right. sheets to the wind. they weren't they weren't worth talking to. You've mentioned Eddie a few times. What makes him tick? What's what's his DNA? Oh, he's just competitive. He's just competitive and he's um, he wants to find that winning edge. You know, and he'll he'll never stop until he finds it. And you know, you know, for him. You know, I, I think that um, he's going to keep going until he gets that World Cup win that he mm. that he you know wants to hold aloft, so to speak. So, you know, I think in that English team, you'll see that he's got um, green shoots for the team that he could he could um, get there again, and and you know he'll hook in for the next three years and COVID pending. I you know provided we we all end up at um, a World Cup in the on the appropriate sort of uh, timeline, you know he'll give it another red hot crack. I think, man. I mean, Matt Gitto spoke about this, like he didn't want to challenge Eddie. He, um, even if he thought, Matt said, even if he thought he was right, there was no way he was going to say it. Do you think that over time stops some of the players from speaking up and actually, I guess, stops them performing at their best levels in some way? I think it depends on on um, where, where they are in the team. You know, I, I don't think when I was coached by Eddie, you know, he finished in 2005 coaching me. He was very open to, and you know, I mentioned it just before, letting Stephen and, and George really help him shape that game plan or you know, the specific detail in the game plan. You know, those guys that he played a long time with and had a good working relationship with and he had probably, it's like anything, you know, your you trust is earned and, and they'd earned that trust with him and those guys had that capability of being able to probably have those conversations. Maybe, and I haven't seen what kids said, but, you know, he might have been talking about when he was when he was younger and, you know, he'd been pulled out of, um, you know, Colts or whatever it was to come and play with the Wallabies. You know, I'm sure he wouldn't have felt too comfortable about voicing his opinions back then. But, again, I don't know, I don't know if Kitts was coached by him after 2005. What about the importance of, I would ask you, um, just because a couple of players have mentioned this before, the importance of celebrating wins, because it's all too easy as a professional to always be looking forward. Oh, we won't celebrate this. We've got another big game next week. But you've got to celebrate, haven't you? Because that's what it's all about. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, I remember, um, and I don't know if they do it anymore, but there came a time, uh, and, I, and, I, and I do feel like just about every international rugby player would have a similar view on this but there was a time when you'd win a game 
and you go in the sheds and you just lock the sheds for, you know, 45 minutes an hour and you'd sit in a circle and you'd have a beer and you'd sing songs and you'd, you'd get ice on your leg or you'd rip your strapping tape off and you'd have a laugh and enjoy it. And um, I remember, you know, maybe late 2000s, like we came in from, we won a game up in, um, won a game in uh, South Africa at, um, in Durban and um, came in and everyone was just uh, on their phones and there was about three or four people that sat in the middle and had a beer and everyone else kind of just went back to their own their world, you know, the, the world outside of the team and kind of reflected on that and I felt that that was a, a bit of a, a low point in terms of you work so bloody hard to create these opportunities as a team um, and you don't get an opportunity to, to, to go and celebrate that much and, you, and um, I just thought it was disappointing that, you know, that the team didn't take that opportunity to, to, you know, bask in a moment of it's only short, you've got to turn around the next week and go and do it all again but you got to take a little bit of time just to stop and have a beer or have a drink or whatever. And it's not even having a drink or a beer. It's just taking some time to sit back and put the feet back next to your mate and say, geez, geez, we've done good tonight. You know, that, that sort of mentality. So, um, yeah, I, I think, the, I don't know what they do now, as I said, but the invent of social media and, and connectivity, I think started creeping its way into, you know, the sanctity of change rooms, which, had never been broached before, you know. It was always that was the team's time to spend that time just to reflect and enjoy the moment. The Rugby Centurions Club has sort of four key values, Nathan: courage, respect, selfless commitment, and resilience. All important. But if you could pick one of those values, which one was particularly important to you? Well, I think we probably touched on it a bit to, to tonight, and I think um, resilience for me always. Uh, um, you know, it was a trait that I admired in people, but I think it's also woven through courage as well and self-respect. I mean, all those traits kind of cross over each other, I think, in, in many ways. But for that reason, I'll probably start with resilience, money, and, and, and work my way through that list. And, I, you know, I was so excited when the Rugby Centurions Club started because I think as it is and it's, it's growing, it's building momentum, the impact and the influence that it can have globally is significant and... Um, you know, I love watching what's going on, particularly in the Northern Hemisphere where there's lots of traction um, taking place. And, you know, you'd love to see it um, expand even more further down south into New Zealand and Australia, so to speak. And I'm sure there's plans afoot of that. But rugby is about the, an amazing community, you know, that, um, that it creates. And I always say that to people when I finished playing and I went to World Cups, I love that you go there and before the game there was all that banter and, you know, it didn't matter who was playing. But as soon as the game was done and dusted, parties from both teams would just get on with it and, and have a beer and, and enjoy the game and celebrate it for what it is, which is a great community. And and the Centurions, uh, in my in my view, um, are people who have um, been lucky enough to, you know, be part of that community for a long period of time. And it's it's a great vehicle to, to give back. So it's really nice to be... A part of it and and to watch um, the growth of the centurions club mate last question if you could say or send a message to young nathan age 16 or 17 what, what would you tell him mate i think the first thing i would have said was shave your head off shave your hair off straight away it'll save you a lot of grief um in the early days of your reds career but but for me overarchingly i i think that um i would have just wanted to adjust my uh preparation a little bit more and be a bit more um, 
little bit more composed about how I um, approach games, but particularly in the earlier earlier years and with a bit more um, thought around it, I suppose. So, yeah, not particularly stunning advice, mate, but that's where I've, I've sort of landed in five seconds. I think Nathan truly represents the essence of what rugby is all about. One of the toughest competitors you could ever come across on the pitch, but at the same time, a true gentleman who deeply respects the values of the sport and what it can bring to people's lives. We hope you enjoyed the programme and please do rate and review the show wherever you're listening to help as many listeners find out about it as possible. And keep checking back in with us as we bring you regular chats with the legends of the game here on the Rugby Centurions podcast. <laughs>